You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Um, today we're reading from John chapter 12, 37 to 50. You can read along uh, on the welcome card or you can grab a Bible at the end of your row or I believe it's also coming up behind me as well. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, You might sense a theme here. My name is also Adam, if I haven't met you. Um, It's... And I am one of the elders uh, here. Uh, Hello to the people joining us online. Um, Today it's my privilege to preach from John 12, 37 to 50. Would you pray with me as I pray now? Dear God, we thank you for your word. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The word who died on the cross for our sins. The word who dwells within us. The word who calls each one of us here today to hear and believe. Lord God, in your mercy, please use me, a weak vessel, to speak clearly, that you may be brought all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Online, you should find an outline of the service. There's been a little bit of tweaking between that, i.e. yesterday and today. Some words will change, but it's nothing too substantial. Um, I'll just put it down to me being slightly disorganised or possibly divine intervention because it sounds a bit better. In our lives, significant events and moments are marked by words, aren't they? Like when Erin, my wife, said, I do, and we got married. Now, I did say I do as well. And like when our son Samuel was born recently and the nurse said, Dad, what do you have? And I said, a boy. I couldn't quite tell, actually, at the time. But what about you? Was it that significant moment when someone said, maybe we should be just friends? Or maybe I'm so disappointed. 
Or maybe it's congratulations, you've done a wonderful job. Farewells with goodbye, I will miss you. Words help us understand what we see and what we think. And in our world, this is also the case. The apology to our First Nations people was marked by words from the Prime Minister. Uh, Mission accomplished at the end of one of the Iraq campaigns. Or in movies, like on the 7th of August 1980, when the world of Australian moviegoers was turned upside down. For on that day, audiences across the nation heard words spoken that utterly changed the way they viewed one person. You see, that's right, on that day, Darth Vader disclosed to Luke Skywalker, after having sliced his hand off, so timing is something, that in fact he had killed Luke, he had not killed Luke's father, but in fact he was Luke's father. Okay, so maybe it's not that significant in Australian cultural and historical identity. I concede that. It wasn't significant. But these words, for those of you who have seen it, know I am your father, changed everything in that storyline. Those words threw into sharp contrast not just the entire film, but the film before it. It also set up the film to come, the climactic final battle where the rebellion would defeat the empire. It's a spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. I'm sorry. I'm not even sure if it is given movie seven to nine, but we can talk movie critiques afterwards. You see, in that moment, it's actually the moment where after this point, the final battle must come. The battle of good versus evil. And you see, empire bears a number of similarities to what we've just heard read in John. Like empire, preparing us for the final battle, this passage from John tells us of the last public acts of Jesus before he will retreat to the upper room, before he himself goes to the final climactic battle between good and evil. And in empire, Luke refuses to believe the truth. That's impossible, he says, and Vader replies, search your feelings, you know it's true. That hasn't worked on my kids yet when I've used it, but we'll see. Likewise, some final words are stated by Jesus, which reveal what may not have been clearly understood about him until then. A truth whose implications are not, are not wanting to be understood or accepted. But all jokes aside, unlike empire, the truth and the words we hear today have eternal and actual consequences, not simply fictional. And they're consequences for each one of us. You see, the words in this passage make it clear exactly who Jesus is. And they are words that each one of us needs to hear. Because by hearing and responding, we truly believe Jesus' words. They don't just simply show us Jesus as a healer, a nice guy. I think the cool kids would go hashtag blessed, but as the only way to know God. The unambiguous picture for John and for his readers is that knowing God only comes through faith in Jesus, through trusting in him. And in our passage today, we see this as John goes about bringing all the different pieces of the puzzle together that he's woven, uh, mixing my metaphors there through the last 12 chapters. 
And what we see is that John showing us three things. Believing is more than seeing. Believing is more than knowing. Believing is actually trusting. It's more than seeing. It's more than knowing. It's actually trusting. And what do I mean by that believing is more than seeing? Well, if you will go back to the passage, which I expect you've got open still, uh, you will turn to verse 37 again. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Now, Jesus here in my mind seems to have worse luck than a politician on an election trail who no one believes. It was a bit like Scott Morrison at the last election. Let's be honest. Many of the people who saw Jesus' miracles, like Lazarus being raised from the dead, the blind man being given sight in the preceding chapters, they believed in Jesus, but not everyone. Why is that? I mean, what John is saying seems to disprove that adage that seeing is believing, but rather proves that not all who see will believe. And as I think about this, I'm left with the question, why? Why would some believe and not others? They've seen these miracles, they've seen them happen, so why wouldn't they? Is it even fair that some would believe and some don't? Is this even right? Well, as we think about that, you need to think about a couple of things as well. And firstly, one is about repetition. John is on about, he's always on about big themes of repetition. And one of those themes is rejection. You see, what we're seeing here is the confirmation of a John wrote back all the way in chapter 1 at verse 11 where he says that Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Put another way, in another of the Gospels, he was a prophet that was not welcome in his own country. The second thing is that all that happened to Jesus and the response of the people reflects that Israel's heart, the heart of the Jewish people, naturally eschewed Jesus' teachings. They just didn't believe it. It almost seems to be an inherited trait. You know, those similarities that pass down from one generation to another? For me, it is my curly hair. For me, it is my sizable nose. We all have things. Don't look closely at my nose now, as some of you are doing. But for God's chosen people, Israel, they have a long history of rejecting God's good gifts, don't they? Moses spoke of it more than 1,400 years before in Deuteronomy chapter 29. When telling the Israelites then of their covenant with God in Moab, he says, With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. Then, just as now, these Israelites had seen miracle after miracle. Manna from heaven, the crossing of the Red Sea, and yet still their hearts were hard towards God. Still they disobeyed him. God was still not enough for them. Despite all the good things, seeing was not enough for the Israelites then. And as John tells us, it wasn't enough for the Jews in Jesus' day either. Old habits truly die hard. 
And yet as I think about this and I think about the Jews, I think that Jesus' acts are still not enough for many people today. The historical evidence of his dying on the cross is rejected by some because they're outraged that a man of God could be so humiliated. It's rejected by some because they're outraged that a man could be used today to prop up imperialism through the ages and today seemingly limit people's freedoms of self and thought or otherwise is unnecessary to human prospering. And still others are, they're disinterested because they see, they don't see how a Jewish man more than 2,000 years ago has any bearing on their life. Whilst others are just sceptical. Because they're just sceptical about what really happened in history. History and truth is so easily disordered, so it goes. The Israelites haven't changed. Old habits do die hard. And so we see in verse 38... The Jews, that will actually fulfill Scripture. This is the reason why. John writes, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The people don't believe Jesus because they cannot see how Jesus lines up with the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord referred to in Isaiah 52.10 where it says, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm. I'm not going to reveal my arm now, so don't worry. In the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. The bearing of the arm should come with salvation. And the Jews cannot see this in Jesus. The arm would bear strength. I mean, after all, how does one who goes about healing people Raising people from the dead, how does he not show the strength of the Lord? He does, doesn't he? These are powerful acts. But Jesus didn't alone come with acts of power. He also came speaking words. And let's be clear. Jesus revealed the arm of God, the power of God in his miracles. And many people accepted these miracles. But it was everything else that Jesus said and did that the people could not accept. And ultimately, they did not recognise his work as that, of be- that being of the Lord. Earlier in the chapter, which we've read a couple of weeks ago and Steve preached from, we saw a woman cleaning his feet with hair. Last week, he told the Jews that he would have to be lifted up. Jesus is not speaking of victory, they think. He's speaking of death. He's not being powerful. He's being humble. For in Jesus, the Jews do not see the Messiah package, that that they've longed for. Jesus did not show them what they believed they wanted, salvation from the Romans, their own physical kingdom again, their own place. No, sadly, the Jews did not really know who the Messiah would be. They only thought they knew. The people see that the Messiah will be great in works, but they don't see he'll be even greater in sacrifice. They see glory, but they don't see that Scripture foretold of glory and honour after he had suffered, not before. They know the strong arm of the Lord to be displayed will bring salvation, 
And you can see this in Isaiah 52 and 53. But they forget that the Messiah would also be the suffering servant. That he is the one. The one who must serve. The one who must suffer before there is any glory. And that's why John quotes Isaiah here. Because back in the 8th century before Christ, Isaiah prophesied that a man would come who would bring good news, who would awaken Zion to splendor, but would also be rejected. You kind of get the feeling that maybe the Jewish people had either forgotten parts of Isaiah or maybe done some selective reading or some selective remembering. I'm not sure. But Isaiah paints a picture of who would come, a man who would be lifted up, but would also be afflicted and disfigured. And that type of behavior, action would be rejected by his own people. Isaiah foresaw a man that would bring good news, news of salvation, but that such news would not be heard because he would not be wanted by his people. They wanted victory. They wanted salvation, not the salvation of their souls. Jesus' glory, this man that Isaiah preached of, his glory would be in his suffering, not in the suffering of others. He would free the oppressed. He would not oppress others. And as we heard last week, Jesus confirmed that he is this suffering servant. He is the one in John verses 32 to 35. He talks about how he would be lifted up and he would draw all people to himself. And how do the crowd respond? In verse 34, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You can almost feel the Jewish people's disappointment, can't you? Where is the victory of God for his people, like in the days of old, restoring a physical kingdom? Where is the mighty arm of God? If the Messiah is going to suffer, isn't he meant to live forever? You can sense the utter disbelief. And it's a disbelief that prevents them from believing, even though they've seen these miracles with their own eyes. And tragically, in their actions, fulfilling yet more of Isaiah's words from this time from chapter 6, you read that in verse 39. For this reason they could not believe, because Isaiah says elsewhere, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about them. A couple of things are going on here. The first is this. In Isaiah 6, God is both telling Isaiah that his own ministry will be hard, because it was, but also speaking to the future tense about the ministry of the one to come. But John quotes Isaiah in the past tense as if to say that Jesus' ministry was the ultimate expression of what Isaiah went to face, rejection and hardened hearts. The other thing that's worth bearing in mind is that this is the result of the arm of God. 
So shocking in Isaiah 52 and 53 is that the servant that was punished and the people were mute and rejected him, so, so shocking is that, that the people's hearts were hardened. It's hard to believe, looking back, that through the miracles of Jesus, people's hearts would be hardened, not softened. Their own eyes did not truly see that the light of the world had come to shine into their darkness to help them truly see. And I think in this moment, we see something of the reality of following Jesus. Perhaps disturbingly for some of us, and encouragingly from what we heard earlier from Sarah, that God has a role in people rejecting Jesus. He confirms them, or he hardens them in their pre-existing unbelief. I think this is a warning about God's terrible justice, but it also should comfort us for when our faithful gospel witness seems to fall on deaf ears. This is God's work. But at the same time, it also challenges us because it does not mean that we do not speak of Jesus to anyone. For none of us can actually judge whether someone has ultimately rejected Christ until the last day. None of us can possibly know. So in hearing this, don't think that people don't need to be told about Jesus. That's incorrect. They do, and we do not stop sharing this. Because the only time we will know whether someone has heard the gospel is actually when Jesus returned. The only time we can be sure is when he comes to take us to be with him in heaven. Believing is more than seeing, and it's also more than just knowing. Not all suffered the plight of the Jews, as we've heard read. Let's turn to verse 42 and 43, where we see that some thought that they could see the light of the world. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Ironically, I mentioned the theme of rejection, and this is another group of people who fear rejection. Some people saw the acts of Jesus and did not believe because he was not what they thought they needed. But some others, as John has written, would not publicly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue because they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Now, did these people believe in Jesus? Maybe. John says that they believed Jesus, so they must have believed that he was the Messiah. But were they willing to follow him? Did they actually trust him? It seems to me that they were still sitting on the fence. And that's an uncomfortable place to be, really. Why? Why were they doing this? Out of fear. Fear that they were excluded from the synagogue. Fear that they would lose their power and status. Fear that they would be outcasts. Ironically, they feared a similar fate to the suffering servant. 
That's not the only thing they fear. They fear the loss of praise, the loss of the praise of others. And I hope in this moment we can all see how debilitating the effects of our own ego can be on trusting in Jesus. The effects of hungering for the praise of others rather than the praise of the Creator. It actually inhibits following Jesus. What's the difference between the people who saw the acts of Jesus and did not believe in this second group? Maybe there's a lot of things and maybe there's nothing. Why? Because these people were sitting on the fence. This second group feared the loss of something over public acknowledgement as a follower of Jesus. It was fear that kept them from publicly professing Jesus. Fear of the loss of prestige. Fear of a loss of status. Fear of the loss of identity. A loss of social acceptance a loss of wealth, a loss of power. Everything the world said was important is what they feared to lose. And everything the world continues to say is still important. It is the fear of everything that you and I here now fear, if we're honest, losing too. After all, it's why we get anxious sometimes when things stop going our way. Because we fear we're going to lose something. I think this second group of people understood who Jesus was, but were not prepared to live the life he called them to. A life of sacrifice and service and not congratulations and comfort. Let's pause here briefly. For those of you who are Christians... How many of you still fear other people finding out that you follow Jesus? How many people would even know if you're honest? How many of you fear what it will do to your reputation, to your status in your peer group, your family? In some ways, we're really not that too dissimilar to the Jews, are we? Always craving the affection of others, wanting to take Jesus at his word, but the living change life part, the hard part, well, that can wait because it, it just seems too hard in the face of what others may think. And why do we fear? Because we fear the loss of human praise and affection. I've talked about sitting on a fence, and if any of you have ever tried to jump a fence and landed on, a, on the top of a fence, you'll know it's very uncomfortable. Uh, as I was thinking about this, I was reflecting, we're actually not made to sit on fences. We're made to do many other things, but sitting on fences, I'm of the view, we're not made to do. It's painful. It's physically painful. And it's also really awkward to try and balance on. And I think this just mirrors the difficulty of the spiritual question that's being asked. Because these people are sitting on the fence. They're going to fall one side or another ultimately. You can't stay up on the fence all the time. They may actually fall into the light. They may plunge into Jesus. Or they may fall into darkness and away from him. 
Now, we don't know from this passage, but we, we do know that some Jews in this part probably revealed their genuine faith at a later stage, like Nicodemus, for instance, and publicly declared their faith in Christ. But others did not. And for those people, indeed for us all, there is a warning in this text about sitting on the fence. There is a warning about judgment. I actually think sitting on a fence is a deadly problem. And perhaps it's such a problem, this is why John goes on to recount Jesus' words in verse 44. To spell out what believing in Jesus is. It's not seeing. It's not knowing only. It's actually trusting. Let's pick it up from verse 44. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Who is Jesus? What does he say in this, his last public moment before his final act? Jesus says believing in him means believing in the one who sent him. Seeing him means seeing the one who sent him. To know Jesus is to know God. To see Jesus is to see God. To see Jesus is to see the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The one who reflects the glory of God. The one who is God. And you cannot believe in God without believing in Jesus. In fact, Jesus will be even more categorical about this in the chapters to come. They are a package deal. You get one, you get the other. Just as you can't have a Big Mac without the special sauce, you can't have Jesus without God and vice versa. It means you can't say, well, I like Jesus. I like what he has to say. But not that God of the Bible. He's too mean. He's too nasty. He's too judgmental. It means you cannot say, well, I like the New Testament. But, but not the Old Testament about God and his judgment. It's a complete package. And actually, that's how it should be, shouldn't it? That's how we should want it. To see the Father and the Son together in perfect love. Because in perfect love, the Son obeys the Father. In perfect love, the Father sends the Son to redeem his people at a cost to himself and not to us. In perfect love, the arm of the Lord is revealed to us in his glory. In perfect love, our sins are paid for on the cross. In perfect love, we are reconciled to our Father. And to reject this, well, I'll let Jesus tell you why. In verse 46, I've come into the world as a light so that no one believes in me should stay in darkness. The light shines so that we don't need to be in darkness anymore. But if you cannot accept who you see when you see Jesus, if you cannot accept who he is, then it means you will stay in darkness. And friends, I don't think that's a place we want to be. Left in the darkness and out of the light. Darkness is a place of fear, a place of loneliness and isolation. It's a place where people long for the praise of others. 
Now, we've all been in a space like that. We've all been in rooms that are dark and we can't find our way around. We've been outside at night when it's dark. The lights, the street lights are amazingly not working. And there are pangs of fear because we cannot see what is lurking. We don't know what is there. Darkness is a place of fear. But it's not just fear. Look at verse 47. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge, the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that this command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. There is a consequence for people who do not accept Jesus' words. There is the judgment of the Father. There is the condemnation of the Father. And that day will come. And that judgment will be horrible. And it will be eternal. But that's not all. There is also life, life without fear, life that is eternal, life that comes from accepting the free gift of Jesus' atoning death on the cross for the penalty of your sin. Life that comes from being accepted freely for who you are, not what you have done. You see, this life comes from accepting that Jesus has reconciled you to your heavenly Father. He's restored you to the one who loves you. He's restored you to the one who has made you. And he will restore you on that last day to how he made you to be. Life that comes from trusting in his words, just as he rose from the dead, so life will come and you will rise on the last day too. So Jesus has spoken. He's spoken words of the Father. From this passage in John, we see believing. It's more than seeing. It's more than knowing. It's actually trusting. And so what's your response to that? How do you respond to Jesus' call to trust in him? Certainly the passage shows us a few ways that people do respond. Some people may say it's all too hard. It's too hard to believe because it happened so long ago. There's not enough evidence. However, seeing people, well, that didn't seem to help a whole bunch of people either. And that's because they had preconceived notions about who Jesus should be and what the problem with the world was. It was outside of them. The real problem was actually in their own hearts. Friends, if that's you, if you think the problem with the world is actually outside and it's not within, that you need to see more, then you need to hear this word today and ask the Lord Jesus to change your heart from within, that you would no longer know fear or desire the praise of others, but you would live in the light of the sun, 
that he would trust in him. For some others, I'm sure they think they're saved because they know enough stuff. But knowing is not the same, but knowing facts, sorry, is not the same as knowing God. We might know a lot of facts about certain things or certain people, but that doesn't mean we have a relationship with them. I mean, I know some facts about Star Wars. I'm trying to sound cool by saying some facts as opposed to a lot of facts. But sadly, that doesn't get me any closer to a relationship with George Lucas. It doesn't actually change my life one bit. But knowing God transforms our lives. And if your life isn't transformed, if people can't tell, can't see that you're a Christian, then maybe you don't really know God. Now, in saying this, please don't mishear me. This is different to someone who's working through what it means to tell other peoples about Jesus. That person is trying to courageously tell friends or family or colleagues that they're a Christian. That person is trying to tell others of their own transformation. And if that is you, I want to encourage you to keep going. Keep going wanting to share with others your trust in Jesus. And thank you for being a challenge to the rest of us who may have gotten a little stale, a little fearful, a little unwilling to talk about Jesus under the banner of inconvenience or fear or injury or, or rejection. Keep on persevering in working through what it means to share with others about the person you've put your trust in. And we, as your family in Christ, we need to take up the challenge to encourage that person, to get alongside them, to help them to share their faith, because, frankly, <laughs> they need us to encourage them. But we also will be encouraged and probably challenged to ask ourselves, why aren't we also sharing our trust in Jesus with others? I think there's a third way of responding to this passage, and that is believing. Believing in, by, by trusting. Actively responding. And this is about entrusting your life to Christ. Listening to his words. So let me ask you some questions. In life, who do you listen to? Whose words matter the most? In life, who do you believe? Who do you get your advice from? How do you make sense of confusing moments? Is it uh, in an Instagram post? Is it the Twitterati? Is it Facebook? Is it your friends? Is it your family? Is it your work colleagues or peer group? Is it some blog that you've been reading? Do people still read blogs? That's not a question to answer, but... When you are stressed and anxious, who do you listen to? And what words do you hear? What voice speaks into your fears, into your doubts, 
into your insecurities? Is it the word of Jesus or is it something else? Is it words of light or actually is it words of darkness? Is it comforting words that remind you that God is with you no matter the valley you are in? Or is it the lies of the evil one that tell you you are alone? Encourage each one of us. Take time tonight before you go to sleep to ask God to hear his voice more clearly in your life. To take Jesus' words and hear them more clearly. For his words are significant. His words are the very words of God. And if there is anything that you should be listening to right now, it is listening to his words. His words that say, come. Come to the well and drink from the streams of living water and be satisfied. His words that say, come. Come to the bread of life and eat and be filled. His words that say, come, come to the good shepherd who loves and cares for you. His words that say, come, come into the light and out of the darkness. Friends, God has spoken by Christ Jesus, Christ the everlasting Son, brightness of the Father's glory, with the Father ever one. It's spoken by the Word incarnate, God before all time began, light of life, to earth descending, Jesus, the man revealing God to man. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word that it is true and never-changing, that gives us hope, that reveals you to us, the Son, the Messiah, and our Saviour. Help us to listen to your words. Help us to know your words. Help us to believe your words. Lord, may we hear your voice more clearly. May it drive out our fear. May we live as people in the light. In Jesus' name, amen.